Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, They Enjoyed the Favor of All the People, Generosity of Community and Compassion. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 19, 2009. In the recent book, called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity, David Kinneman of the Barna Group presents statistical research and extensive interviews from a three-year study that document how an overwhelming percentage of 16 to 29-year-olds view Christians with hostility, resentment, and disdain. These broadly and deeply negative views of Christians aren't just superficial stereotypes with no basis in reality, says Kinneman. Nor are the critics people who have had no contact with churches or Christians. It would be a tragic mistake, he argues, for believers to protest that outsider outrage at Christians is a misperception. Rather, it's based upon their real experiences with today's Christians. According to Kinneman's Barna study, here are the percentages of people outside the church who think that the following words describe present-day Christianity. Anti-homosexual, 91%. Judgmental, 87%, hypocritical, 85%, old-fashioned, 78%, too political, 75%, out of touch with reality, 72%, insensitive to others, 70%, and finally, boring, at 68%. It would be hard to overestimate, says Kinneman, how firmly people reject and feel rejected by Christians. Or think about it this way, he suggests, and I quote, <clears throat> When you introduce yourself as a Christian to a friend, neighbor, or business associate who is an outsider, you might as well have it tattooed on your arm, anti-homosexual, gay-hater, homophobic. I doubt you think you're I doubt that you think of yourself in these terms, but that's what outsiders think of you. Gabe Lyons of the Fermi Project, who commissioned the Barna research, remembers his first look at the data. And I quote I'll never forget sitting in Starbucks pouring through the research results on my laptop. As I soaked it in, I glanced at the people around me and was overwhelmed with the thought, this is what they think of me. It was a sobering thought to know that if I had stood up and announced myself as a Christian to the customers assembled in Starbucks that day, they would have associated me with every one of the negative perceptions described in this book. Why these negative characterizations flourish, the extent to which they are deserved, or whether they are even accurate, 
are all interesting and complex questions. We know, of course, that Christians can be despised for reasons both good and bad, both deserved and undeserved. But at least we can say this much. The emergent community of those who had followed Jesus gained a different reputation. We read in Acts chapter 2, 47, They enjoyed the favor of all the people. Why this contrast between then and now? After a period of confusion, doubt, and disbelief following the gruesome execution of Jesus, and despite threats from the religious and government authorities, his followers became convinced that, as we read in Acts 2.32 and 4.20, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. To the shock of almost everyone, these unschooled and ordinary Jesus followers proclaimed their message with courage and boldness. In Jerusalem, converts joined the movement in mass, first 3,000 people, then increasing to 5,000 people. Luke gives us a snapshot of this vibrant Jesus community that helps to explain the appeal of their message, its consequent expansion, and their local reception. From the lectionary for this week, Acts chapter 4, 32 to 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was with them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. A few pages earlier, Luke describes a similar sort of primitive communism, as some have described it, in Acts 2, 42-47. Clearly, the public reputation of these first Christians in Jerusalem differed markedly from what Kinnaman describes in his recent book. What's the difference? Luke's depiction of the Jerusalem believers identifies a signature characteristic of the early movement. In one word, generosity. Their social generosity expressed itself in community, and their financial generosity expressed itself in compassion. Following the example of Jesus, the first Christians broke down social barriers and disregarded religious taboos that distinguished between the ritually clean and the unclean, the worthy and the unworthy, the respectable and the unrespectable. They were, says Luke, one in heart and mind. They subverted normal social hierarchies of wealth, eth ethnicity, religion, and gender 
in favor of a radical egalitarianism before God and with each other. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 3.28. About a century after Luke wrote, the early Christians had a well-known and well-deserved reputation for social generosity that built bridges of community rather than walls of separation. Tertullian, for example, writing in the late second century, wrote, Our care for the derelict and our active love have become our distinctive sign before the enemy. See, they say, how they love one another and how ready they are to die for each other. In numerous studies, like Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, 2001, Social scientists have documented how disconnected and isolated people feel today. We accumulate what Putnam calls a growing social capital deficit that leaves people in our culture longing for a more collectively caring community. Which communal caring is exactly the sort of social generosity that Luke describes in his, in his historical description? In addition to social generosity, <clears throat> financial generosity expressed itself in compassion toward the needy. Indeed, a few pages later in his account, Luke describes famine relief efforts, Acts 11.29. Some people dismiss Luke's description of wealth divestment as a utopian dream, but that's not true. There are many believers who live this dream, as Gary Wills observes in his book, What Jesus Meant, 2006. Eastern monks, the first Franciscans, the Shakers, the Catholic workers, worker priests, base communities in Latin America, and Christian communities like Jonah House in New York City. To take one example, the Catholic worker movement was founded by Dorothy Day and Peter Marin in 1933. It espouses a strong belief in the God-given dignity of every human being. Today, over 185 Catholic worker communities remain committed to nonviolence, voluntary poverty, prayer, and hospitality for the homeless, exiled, hungry, and forsaken. Catholic workers protest injustice, war, racism, and violence of all forms. In a word, they exhibit both social generosity and financial generosity. The legacy of those first Jerusalem believers resonated three centuries later. The pagan emperor Julian the Apostate, who ruled from 361 to 363, and also vehemently opposed Christians and stripped them of their rights and privileges, acknowledged, quote, the godless Galileans feed not only their poor, but ours also. Those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. The so-called primitive communism of the early Christians subverted conventions of envy, 
avarice and accumulation. Judging from the letters that Paul wrote to the churches throughout the Mediterranean basin, their practice of divestment seems to have been limited to Jerusalem. It was clearly voluntary and not compulsory, as the tragic example of Ananias and Sapphira shows in Acts chapter 5. Luke also says that the selling of property occurred from time to time, which is to say that it was sporadic and based upon a person's sense of God's call rather than compulsory or systematic. But none of these caveats diminish the revolutionary impact of financial generosity expressed in compassion for the needy. Neither Jesus nor his first followers advanced an economic, social, or political program, even though Christians on the left and the right do so today. Gary Wills even suggests that the Christians' alternate community of radical social and financial generosity was a sort of anti-politics. A generation or two after the events described by Luke, the theologian Justin Martyr, who died in the year 165, summarized the appeal of Christian community. Those who once delighted in fornication now embrace chastity alone. We who once took most pleasure in accumulating wealth and property now share with everyone in need. We who hated and killed one another and would not associate with men of different tribes because of their different customs, now, since the coming of Christ, live familiarly with them and pray for our enemies. Luke concludes his general description of the believer's social and financial generosity with a specific example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Luke describes Barnabas as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And in Acts 14.14, 14, he even refers to him as an apostle. Barnabas, Barnabas exemplified all the goodness and generosity of those first believers. When the newly converted Paul tried to associate with the dubious Christians in Jerusalem, who did not believe that he was really a disciple, Barnabas vouched for him. When news reached Jerusalem that even Gentiles were converting in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to them as their emissary. He encouraged them and brought Paul from Tarsus to them for an entire year. Barnabas trekked some 1,400 miles with Paul to plant churches deep into Asia Minor. It was the wisdom of Barnabas that prevailed at the first church council at Jerusalem regarding the place of Jewish customs in the lives of Gentile converts. And it was Barnabas who had a sharp disagreement with Paul because Barnabas included his failed cousin Mark in further ministry even after Paul had refused to do so because Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia. Many years later Paul admitted 
that Barnabas had been right. Colossians 4 verse 10. I get discouraged when I read studies like unchristian, partly because I think they have a point. I wish that we Christians could somehow recapture the witness of those first believers who, because as Luke says, great grace was with them all, demonstrated overflowing generosity to their neighbors, and consequently enjoyed the favor of all the people. Let that be what Tertullian long ago called our distinctive mark. For books this week, I review Philip Fradkin, a biography. The title is Wallace Stegner in the American West, New York, not 2008, 369 pages. In his autobiographical novel, Recapitulation, Wallace Stegner wrote of his character that, quote, all his earliest years in Salt Lake had been an effort, much of the time as unconscious as growth itself, and yet always there as if willed, to outgrow what he was and become what he was not. Astray, he yearned to belong. An outsider and isolate, he aspired to friends and family in the community solidarity he saw all around him in that Mormon city. In this comprehensive biography of Stegner, published to coincide with the centennial of his birth in 1909, and written with the full cooperation of Stegner's only child, Paige, Philip Fragkin shows just how true this quote was of his subject. Stegner's earliest years began in an orphanage in Seattle, the drought-stricken frontier prairie of Saskatchewan homesteaders. One year in Great Falls, Montana, where at age 11 he encountered his first flush toilet and bathtub, and then 12 years in Salt Lake City and the University of Utah. As he describes him, quote, the happiest years I ever knew or will know. Stegner's father was a gambler and a bootlegger who moved the family 20 times in 10 years to avoid raids. A man with a violent temper who died in a murder-suicide. Stegner hated his father and inherited his temper. He was plagued by guilt over his mother's hard life and devoted to Mary, his own wife of 59 years. <clears throat> Later years took Stegner to Harvard and then Stanford, where he found the creative writing program and nurtured future writers like Wendell Berry and Larry McMurtry. Although he lived in the Stanford area for almost 50 years, he felt alienated from the university by the time he left, and a bitter argument led him to donate his papers to the University of Utah. A man who wrote eloquently about the power of place, he spent considerable time at a home in Vermont, which is where his ashes were spread after he died in 1993. 
Stegner won almost every literary award there is, and his books have been translated into numerous languages. Yet he was forever cast as a regional author and felt spurned by the East Coast elites. His novel, Angle of Repose, won a Pulitzer in 1972, but was later mired in controversial and genuinely complex charges of plagiarism. Outwardly successful, Stegnard was inwardly deeply insecure. As Fragen points out in his introduction, the previous two biographies of Stegner in 1997 in 1996, were written by professors of literature. He paints with a broader brush and hangs his narrative on the three major components of Stegner's life and work. Talented teacher, reluctant conservationist, and thirdly, prominent author. Fragkin honors Stegner, but does not ignore the many contradictions in his life. Did he ever fit in or, as he said of himself, become what he is not? It's doubtful, Fragkin suggests. The autobiographical character Bruce Mason in Stegner's novel The Big Rock Candy Mountain asks, But going home where? Where do I belong? A bibliography of books by and about Stegner, along with a number of photos, completes the biography. Philip Fradkin, Wallace Stegner in the American West. For film this week, I review The Visitor from the year 2007. In the first scene of this movie, a 50-something widower named Walter quits his fifth piano teacher and sells his piano. His buttoned-up and boring life as an economics professor in Connecticut has flatlined emotionally. About two hours later, in the final scene, Walter is grooving on an African drum in the underground of the New York City subway. Is this formulaic, far-fetched, even predictable? You'll have to decide, but many critics have loved this film. When Walter is forced to present a paper in New York City, which he admits that he didn't even write, he returns to an apartment he owns there only to discover two squatters from Senegal and Syria. But they are more than mere squatters for several important reasons, and how their stories intersect form the plot of this movie, and the reason why Walter found authenticity in his life after admitting that for so very long he had been, quote, only pretending. The Visitor, from the year 2007. And finally, for poetry, for springtime, we've posted a poem by the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan. Henry Vaughan lived from 1621 to 1695. The title of the poem, The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews, of future bliss.
Hark, how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Henry Vaughan, The Revival Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 19th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.